so, so there's a problem with the detachment of not political but social consequences to law and the strict adherence to the letter of the law. There are people who want to go back to fundamental constitutional interpretations of the intent of the original colonists, right? Well, the intent of the original colonists was to keep me three-fifths of a man. That was written into the Constitution. You don't change that if you're going to abide by the intent of the original colonists, of, of the original constitutionalists, right? And so if you want to be pure, a pure constitutionalist, then you're going to incorporate racism and you're never going to change it. No matter how much three-fifths of a human being, if you're Black, flies in the face that we are all created equal. This is where the tension occurs in the Constitution. And you're never going to change a law if you're not going to recognize that keeping things separate and funding them differently inherently makes them unequal. Those are issues that evolve through debate. Those are tensions that are uncovered through analysis and through the recognition of the consequences. And yet, look how long it took to make the change. What change? Oh, come on. Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. Dr. Weinstein. Dr. Nelson. How are you? I am well, and uh, am I... Adding to your handicap today? Uh-huh. I always blame anybody and everybody for my handicap. Do you guys uh, play for anything but fun? Just fun. <laughs> kind of. Maybe you're not as intimidating as I thought. I play for a penny hole. So. <laughs> I remember the first time I, uh, when I was in Mississippi, Dwight Mercer was the dean there, and he he's the one who got me into golf. And and the first time he said, okay, Phil, today we're going to play for keeps. We're playing a dollar hole. It was the four of us. It turns out you end up exchanging two or three dollars at the end, unless you're really, really, really bad. Then you do give up $18, you know, but you know, most, most golfers have a high handicap anyway. And you don't know that when you're playing people that are cut golfers. And when you see people hit really good shots and you see, you think of them as a good golfer, you don't, you don't really notice how often they miss because you're so busy focusing on how often you miss. Right. No, I, I, um, I play once, maybe twice a year. And uh, the guys who I play with, there's six of us that normally go out. There's the first three that are good and the rest of us. And so um, the rest of us have fun and, and the other three try to show off. So my goal is to, is to shoot my weight. And so if I want to get better, I have to lose weight. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, first of all, shooting your weight is really bad. <laughs> That's on the front nine. And, <laughs> second, and, and, oh. <laughs> and secondly, I'd never make it. 
You probably start to get a little bit arthritic after a while. Um, I just want to take a minute to thank uh, Nationwide for their support and continue to appreciate their support that they provide, not just for our podcast, but for the entire veterinary profession. Let's see, where do we start? We, I think it, in one of our podcasts, we talked about the art and science of debate. Yes. And how we have, we have lost that focus, the, 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 um, the ability to have a topic, two sides, and to discuss that topic with facts and figures and, and ideas and thoughts without being accusatory or to, to, um, to quote Saturday Night Live, this isn't me, this is Saturday Night Live, Jane, you ignorant slut. <laughs> you know, when the debate starts with the rebuttal with that line, it's not a debate. That's true. That's but true. That's where, it, that's where we are. Yeah, yes. Yeah, it, it starts by slapping you in the face and then says, now I want you to listen to me. Yeah. And that, that's the, the, I don't know whether they still have debate clubs in, in high school or college, but I do think that a, a good, honest debate about topics and discussions about topics are great ways to not force change, but just to get people to think about it. And as long as the focus within these discussions slash debates is based upon uh, fact-based or strong opinion, and, and not accusatory of the other party, uh, I think they're fun to watch. I totally agree. The common mistake we usually make in debates is um, the tendency to assert motivation behind your opinion, rather than understanding the experience that led you to your opinion. Those are two different things. If I get to assert a motivation, then I get to assert whatever I want to your motivation. And we generally pick a malevolent motivation. The reason you believe that is because you're going to get something out of it because you believe that. When in essence, you may believe it because of the way you've been treated all your life. And therefore, you have been guided to this position. And it could still be wrong, but at least it'd be understandable. As opposed to my asserting a motivation and making it evil, then I make you evil. The goal of debate is to truly explore the reasoning behind the different positions. The goal of argument is to win. I would argue. <laughs> I would debate slash argue, postulate. That, very good. That, that our governmental houses, whether it's a city council, a board of supervisors, legislative, regulatory, whatever branches they are, have gone away from debate. While I was in D.C., I was watching a city council meeting. Don't ask me why. It happened to just come out on, in the news, and they were showing this councilwoman who was trying to explain her position. And as she began to talk, three other council councilmen, and I mean that in a genderless way, three other councilmen were talking amongst themselves. And she had to stop and say, excuse me, I'm sorry, but I'm talking right now. And their response was, go ahead, you can talk. And she was like, but you're not listening to me. And they didn't understand. They looked at her as if she was asking the impossible. 
they actually thought, wait a minute, you expect us to sit here and just listen and not talk? Which meant that they don't, they didn't understand the roles of debate either. I mean, they looked incredulous as if, are you kidding? Are you saying we can't talk while you're gesticulating? And as if we're not here to solve the city's problems. We've already got them solved. You just need to listen to our, our voice. Argument, not debate. Yes, but that's even a fundamental rule of debate. You don't interrupt the person and you listen so you can take notes and make points when you get your chance the next time. Good debaters leave the debate more friendly than they were during the debate because they were listening to the points of the other side and in their own heads saying, good point, I need to rebut it. Yeah, I don't know they leave any more friendlier, but they do at least learn. Right. I mean, yeah, we, we really should be using debates as a learning tool and not just a decision-making tool from that standpoint as well. Right. Now, how did we get to debates? Because I don't remember, but it you was- You brought uh, it up. You're the one who brought it in. I don't really yeah, know, but it, there was a, it was just, I think it was just the fact that we're, this, these continued discussions- and We got to debates when, when I made the comment that you don't have to respect my opinion, but you have to respect my right to express my opinion. Right. But, you know, I, I would love to see- politicians, and I think it goes back to some of the other conversations we've talked about, which is in the federal government, when there was a, a much narrower gap between both sides, political sides, they had debate. Now they have argument. They don't listen. I mean, you can see it, how empty a room might get when, a, when the other political party is presenting their position and, they, and, and others don't want to hear it. Or even when the president did his State of the Union, he was interrupted by shouts from the Senate floor or the, the House floor during the, the, the presentation. We lost a lot of respect for one another as a result of this tribalism that we've got. Well, we've definitely broken down our standards of behavior. Ever since Obama was yelled at in his State of the Union, it has become okay. You know, that should have been a one-off. That should have been, we will never do that again. I mean, it was startling when it was yelled, you lie. Are you saying that happened with Biden? Because I didn't see his whole speech. Yeah, there was uh, some comments from the floor that interrupted his speech. I hope we don't become the, the British Parliament. Watching the Supreme Court process, and, and it's not just with the current, but even in the past, the discussion in the news has nothing to do with the qualifications of the individual. Why would the discussion in the news have anything to do with the qualification of the individual when a discussion at the hearing has nothing to do with the qualifications of the individual? Well, that's where I was going. That's where I was going. This is basically what, what we're talking about is, is how we are behaving during the process and forgetting about the process. The process has been broken for a while. Correct. Terms, I'm ready to take the selection of Supreme Court justice out of Congress altogether. Yeah, let's run with that, baby. How are we going to do it? Oh, I think there needs to be a, a totally different body that looks at justices. And I think that body should come from the justice system. I think we should be electing judges just to select Supreme Court justices. And I think that those judges should be unassailable when it comes to legal qualifications. And then the public can elect among them. And that's where the politics comes in.
So we let the public be the ultimate vote for the um, the new Supreme Court justice. Not no, not the new Supreme Court justices. The ultimate ju vote for the panel that will screen Supreme Court justices. We have uh, I don't know how many district courts around the country that have high, you know, they're just below what might be the Supreme Court. I know. Maybe I'd get a representative from each federal district court. There, every time there was a vacancy, maybe the chief justice of the state Supreme Courts would, would be the ones that make that selection. Interesting. Well, we just, uh, we just rocked the system right there. I know. I don't disagree. It, it has become a show and not an opportunity to show how the system works. But the part of the, the, the longer term ramifications is what will the next generation of people who see this think we're setting bad standards going forward is what I'm trying to trying to figure out how to say. So I am more concerned about the political influence of, in the justice system than I am the justice system itself. Yes, which right. was never supposed to be politicized to begin with. Exactly, exactly. Despite how she's being treated, I am so gratified that a Black woman grew up in this country with the experiences that she has and still has a love for law. Well, there's a point. The same way that Sandra Day O'Connor had, the same that Ginsburg had, the same love that I'm trying to think of... Um, the chief justice that reigned over the integration of schools. I can't think of his name now. But my point is that that tradition is still holds. And it's holding because of the people that are presently running errands for the Supreme Court justices. There's a culture in the justice system that apparently is still working. What's not working is the selection process. Yes. And we're still producing good legal scholars. But our political machinery is destroying the, the selection process and putting people in play that should not be in play. And I dare say that we have at least one person, I think two, on the Supreme Court that do not meet legal muster. I'm going to say one. The other person, I just strongly, strongly differ in ideology with. But, you know, at least growing up, going through high school, government, et cetera, the Supreme Court was supposed to be above the fray. I know that. Yes. And, and I can think of explanations for it. But, you know, when Earl Warren, Warren Berger. There um, you go. That's it. Right. Earl Warren was the during the, the Civil War in, in Civil War. Civil rights. Wow. I didn't. Somehow, I've, I remember seeing him on TV. I didn't think they had TV during the Civil War, but that's okay. Go ahead. I'm listening. <laughs> well, I didn't know you were that old that you actually lived through the Civil War, so that's a different <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, now that I've lost my complete train of thought, no, it, I just always thought that it was above, they, they were above the fray, and you know, whether it was the Obama administration or prior, we have had a politicizing of the Supreme Court that shouldn't be there, which is what you were saying earlier, to the point that decisions are not made without being influenced heavily by a political lean. There was a, there was a page in the Orange County Register this morning that 
you know, had a, a line of zero in the middle, one, two, three to the right, one, two, three to the left, like standard deviations to the, to the right or left of center. And it showed where each of the current Supreme Court justices were leaning in their routine decisions. There should be nobody at three or two. I can see being one standard deviation to right or left of center, but we shouldn't be having Supreme Court justices being that far to one side or the other, my opinion. Maybe we shouldn't, but we shouldn't be surprised that there are because that's how we select them. Correct, but that's how we've selected them more recently. I think there was a more mainstream way of looking at things 20, 25, 30 years ago. I, I do think that this, this separation and tribalism that's occurred with the political parties has created this response within. And let's be honest, Mitch McConnell has taken and made the Supreme Court his Plato um, over the past 20 years. Well, uh, Mitch McConnell aside, I think your white privilege allows you to think that. 50 years ago, my experience was that the Supreme Court was just as racist as the country. 50 years ago, it took the, the Warren uh, Supreme Court to determine that the practice, so, so there's a problem with the detachment of not political, but social consequences to law and the strict adherence to the letter of the law. There are people who want to go back to fundamental constitutional interpretations of the intent of the original colonists, right? Well, the intent of the original colonists was to keep me three-fifths of a man. That was written into the constitution. You don't change that if you're going to abide by the intent of the original colonists, of, of the original constitutionalists, right? And so if you want to be pure, a pure constitutionalist, then you're going to incorporate racism and you're never going to change it. No matter how much three-fifths of a human being, if you're Black, flies in the face that we are all created equal. This is where the tension occurs in the Constitution. And you're never going to change a law if you're not going to recognize that keeping things separate and funding them differently inherently makes them unequal. Those are issues that evolve through debate. Those are tensions that are uncovered through analysis and through the recognition of the consequences. And yet, look how long it took to make the change. What change? Oh, come on. I'm not sure we've made any changes. Okay, well, I'm, you know, see, this is when you, you, you really blow me out the water because, uh, because you go from white privilege to just total blindness. No, well, I'm, I'm, there was a sarcasm in there, but it's just, it's, again, we're still dealing with the same. We're still dealing with hearts that haven't changed, correct? Right. Correct. But we, but we have made behavioral changes. We do have integrated schools. Yes, now. yes. And, and you don't have to sit in the back of the bus and you can sit it at the counter. with. Well, you know what? The back of the bus had the biggest window, so I was okay with that. You know, uh, you know, but still, my point is, is that I just can't be cavalier about the progresses, the progress that we made. Uh, seeing things 
through your eyes, absolutely. Or but, dismissive. But, but now that but but you are absolutely right when you say there are still people who hate me. Right. There are still people who wish I was only three fifths of a person so they could take that other two fifths and use it in their advantage. I get that. But at least from a constitutional perspective, I am recognized more as a citizen. I still have problems. And it's because of the laws we haven't changed yet. Right. What about term limits for Supreme Court justices? Well, that's a whole nother story. And I, we're running out of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you make friends? <laughs> oh, I never did answer that question, huh? <laughs> I actually think I did tell you. I don't think I consciously make friends. I, I think you said it best. Friendship is evolves. You know, at first you said, if, if they laugh at my jokes at first, then then they're my friend. But what you really meant was, that's the first step. And whether they laugh this time or ten time or ten meetings later, at least they finally get it, and they and they finally learn get you right. But trust is earned, not awarded. Right. Well, again, it got no like trust. You've got to know people, got to like people, and then get then trust goes two ways. Yeah, and maybe we should we should continue this conversation because marketers have always used friendship as a ploy and that's not the kind of friendship we're talking about no no it, it's right? just I, I think it's I mean, just a good definition to help yeah car salesmen used to use that very well they actually they counted on the fact that we all needed friends when you walked into their lot hey friend how you doing and they played on that right you know um and so as much as i want as much as i understand relationship building in sales, relationship building in practice, relationship building in business, I shove, I shudder sometimes at the minimization of relationship building in the process. Yeah. You know, you and I are relationship builders. We really are. We we do that naturally. But we're able, but we don't do it as a gimmick. We truly, you know, some people are open, are, some people approach you with arms open at first and then determine whether you belong in their grasp or not. Others approach you with their arms crossed and then later determine if they should open their arms or not. I think that's a good opportunity for us to kind of wrap up this conversation and, um, with permission, I'm going to say thank you and uh, goodbye, my friend, until we uh, talk again and look forward to uh, getting you to answer my questions and put you back in the hot seat. Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.